Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome back to The Front Three. Yes, we are back in a revised format where we're going to be discussing the three biggest talking points of the weekend. Of course, I am Statman Dave today. I'm joined by Chris Hennage and Nico Morales. Chaps, how's it going? Yeah, not bad, thanks. How you doing, Dave? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. A little bit of a delayed response there, a little bit of a phone call. But anyway, let's move on to the talking points of today's action. Of course, it is transfer window time. The clicks are flying around the internet. There is clickbait at every single corner of the World Wide Web. But we're going to go through that clickbait and we're going to divulge which is right and which is wrong. And we're going to sort of work out which is the best deal of the window so far and which will be the best deal in the final week of the window. Okay, the big moves so far, of course, Alexis Sanchez joining Manchester United and Henrik Mkhitaryan going the other way in a big, big swap deal in the Premier League. But first of all, chaps, I think we want to touch on the Arsenal moves this week. Aubameyang apparently on his way to Borussia Dortmund. Chris, can he replace Alexis Sanchez's goals and how important will he be for Arsenal going forward if he joins? I think he'll be huge for them. He fits their system quite well. Um, he is a very different player to Alexis Sanchez. You, you have to keep that in mind, though. He's, he's, not, he's not someone in my mind that, that necessarily lifts a team on his own, but at the same time, I think he fits better with teammates. I think he's less of an individual on the pitch than, than Sanchez has been known to be um, at times. And I think, obviously, for, for Arsenal, that aspect of, of Sanchez's style has been at both benefit and detriment to them. In terms of replacing the goals, I'll be very surprised if he if he doesn't score goals in, in the Premier League, given his record with with Dortmund, given the kind of finisher he is. I think, I think ultimately, he's someone to finish off the moves that those behind will create. That's why, to me, signing Mkhitaryan, having Ozil there for however long he decides to stay, will be of benefit. And it will, in theory, provide them that, that missing piece of the, the puzzle and attack, even if there are perhaps some concerns elsewhere on the field. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Uh, Birmingham averages a goal every four shots um, in the last five seasons, scoring 98 goals, ranking himself in the top 10 of goal scorers in Europe. But Nico, moving on to the sort of what's going to happen away from Arsenal and maybe Olivier Giroud will be one player that's going to sort of miss out. And he's been heavily linked with Borussia Dortmund and, of course, Chelsea. Nico, where do you think the best move for 
both Giroud to go? And is it a good move for Chelsea, who've been searching for a target man? We've seen Andy Carroll, Peter Crouch, you know, Edin Zeko in recent weeks. But is Olivier Giroud the perfect guy to sort of maybe unlock Chelsea's problem at the moment, that's scoring goals? Yeah, I think he could really help them out from in a goal-scoring sense because as we what we know about Olivier Giroud is that he is a technically gifted footballer with his feet, but he's also really powerful in the air. And I think given, you know, the the clear, concise manner in which Chelsea have gone after a very specific type of striker, Olivier Giroud fits exactly, you know, correctly into that mold. So I think given the fact that he's a little bit older and also, the you know the, the the fact that there are a couple other strikers at Chelsea if Batshuayi does in fact stay, and even then it's they still have Alvaro Morata and maybe a few players that they like to put in that kind of position. Um, he would be played rotationally, so ideally at his age, that's what he would want to do, and it would be a nice fat paycheck for the Frenchman. So I think um, everybody would kind of benefit from that situation. So despite the fact that maybe he might go the other way in the Aubameyang deal, he might not. Uh, it would be a good good move for him because I think he's he's done exceptionally well in the Premier League and he has the qualities of a player that is likely to to do really well under Antonio Conte. I think it's quite an interesting move. I find it a little bit strange that Conte's gone for such a, a target man as striker in a way. You know, Morata is a tall guy, could be used in that role for Chelsea. But Chris, why do you think it is? Do you think it's going to be a move towards a 3-5-2, maybe Eden Hazard playing in central midfield? Or is is he going to move to the 4-2-4 that he played over with Siena in Italy? I think the 4-2-4 would, would be interesting, but I'm not sure if it uh, gives them enough con- control, uh, Chelsea. The the 3-5-2 is an interesting one. This is where you can really get in the weeds. and, and I mean, I, I could see Hazard playing behind the front two. I don't think he would necessarily drop into central midfield. I like the thought of him coming a little bit deeper and being able to exploit that space, maybe drag central midfielders deeper with him um, and even maybe give centre-backs or, or full-backs something to think about as he sort of floats around the, the pitch. What to me is key is that they have someone that I think they can rely on because as, as good as Morata has been um, through through the whole season, when you take the whole picture in, into consideration, he has dipped off lately and there's been some, some off-the-field issues as well. You know, uh, it was reported just the other day that, that sadly one of his friends had, had passed away from a uh, a car crash in, in Spain. So I think there's there's clearly a lot going on with him at the minute. Um, and I think for that reason, there, there needs to be almost a relieving of the pressure that's put on him. And, and I think it's it's less about the concerns that we had in the summer about him handling the step up to be a leading forward and more to the fact that Chelsea really, I don't think, have someone who's ready to to challenge and push him. I think Batshuayi is, is sort of stuck in that role as a closer um, rather than, than someone who could really start a run of games and put form together. It's, it is fascinating, all these moves. You know, I'd potentially say that someone like Tammy Abrahams would be perfect for what Chelsea are looking for right now, a striker that's physical, that's strong, that you could play as sort of a target man. But of course, he's out on loan at Swansea. And again, Chelsea failing to bring young players through their team. But all this little triangle... Also- if if, on, if you kind of if you kind of look at the move uh, as well, like I said before, Giroud is a technically gifted player. That's part of the reason that Arsene Arsene Wenger wanted him in Arsenal. He is very good with the ball at his feet and and can hold the ball up really well. And if you look at a lot of the goals that Chelsea have scored this season, it has been these little quick, intricate moves between their very gifted front players and Hazard and Willian and Pedro and all those guys. And it has been all these back flicks and you know through balls that that kind of they do it in a very interesting way so I think in that sense Giroud would help them massively because sometimes they are kind of left without an outlet and what as we've 
seen a number of times with, with Chelsea this season. They use that specific tactic of a center back passes to the forward because they like to compress the formation really well. If you have someone that is physically gifted but also technically gifted enough to match up with the players that are going to score those goals um, like Hazard and, and William, then I think it's a it's a match made in heaven in terms of immediate success. The issue is kind of going forward and how they, uh, how they score goals later on because Giroud is quite old, but it, it's, it looks to be a move that lines up with the, what they want to do tactically for the, the problem that you mentioned there, which is for them scoring goals. It is an interesting one. So just for you two guys to rate these sort of transfers, if this triangle goes, so Bermian does go, does go to Arsenal, Giroud to Chelsea, and Dortmund do get Bashuai, who gets the best deal for you? First, Chris, what do you reckon? I, I like Bashuai. I just, I'm not, I'm not fully convinced by him yet. I'm not sure if he's got that sort of, main streak that I like from a, a, a star forward. I, I do think Aubameyang is probably the best deal of the lot though just because of it's the scope of improvement that's that's how I look at it is it's not necessarily who's the best player quote unquote it's, it's who's going to improve teams the most and I think Aubameyang improves Arsenal the most. Now it's a fair point Nico you're going to go with Olivia Giroud's touch and ability to hold the play up for Chelsea? <laughs> No, definitely not. I would say um, I would say Bachuai to Dortmund or Dortmund rather get the best deal because he's an exceptionally gifted player. I think he's suffered from the fact that Antonio Conte has some very specific personal issues with how he likes to deal with the squad. He's really young, and what if there's anything we learned from Aubameyang over the past couple of years is that although he is a supremely physically gifted striker in terms of his, you know, as you're mentioning there, his exceptional striking ability and as we all know his pace um it was rather the system that created a lot of chances for him so i think if he goes to a dortmund that yes are kind of wayward right now but their main one of their main issues is actually scoring goals putting a, a really talented and also physically gifted striker like him in a in a system that does really well to create chances with another couple of really young talented players i think is a, is a really good match so for me if that does happen which i really hope it does because i think a lot of people are pushing for him to have the the career that we think we, he'll have um i think that'll be an, an amazing move for him no it's a very interesting point of course dortmund are going to get a hell of a lot of cash as well for the abemiang move around 60 million to 70 million pounds they're going to get a young striker in Bashwai, which obviously nico mentioned their squad, they are in a rebuilding phase. You know, they're currently, uh, you know, very sloppy in the league. They're, they're beating teams and then they're losing against other teams. They were 2-0 down at the weekend. It just seems to be a really weird spell for Dortmund, currently sitting sixth in the Bundesliga. So maybe it is the best deal for Borussia Dortmund, but I think I agree with Chris. A Bermiang to Arsenal is going to be a banger. Moving on to other transfer news, Manchester City spending more money on defenders, aren't they, Nico? Laporte to Manchester City. Apparently, La Liga have confirmed it whilst we're talking that City have matched the release clause for the Athletic Bilbao centre-half. Nico, good deal for City. Uh, where's Otamendi play? Is Stones going to be in there when Vincent Kompany's fit? How does Guardiola get the best out of these, say, four centre-halves? And which for you is the best pairing? It's an interesting one. It's it's something that we discussed on the last last podcast because, as I mentioned, Laporte and John Stones have some very similar attributes. They like to carry the ball into midfield. They like to draw defenders. They like to create havoc for the opposition. And though that those are all attributes that I think line up well with the Guardiola system, you don't want two center backs in 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 the team if you're going to play sort of a four man defensive system that are going to be doing the exact same thing and that's why I think John Stones and Nicolas Otamendi is such a good partnership because of the contrast that they have in terms of their positive attributes um so I think 
it's it, it it might be a move for the future because as as we saw earlier this season with Benjamin Mendy fit, it was more of a three five two type of system or something that did feature in fact three at the back. So. I think uh, for the future, it might be a rotation in terms of sticking with the 4-3-3 um, for John Stones as well as Nicolas Otamendi and, and other partners that we may see in there. Eliakim Mangala has certainly made a case for himself to at least stay for some uh, period of time. And if Vincent Company ever stays fit, then that's that, of course, is an option as well. Um, but I think realistically, the move would be for all of these three defenders to play at the same time and given the fact that we are more inclined to play a kind of wing back system with Kyle Walker and Benjamin Mendy when those players are fit I think eventually that's where City will go as as to whether we need the player right now I'm not 100% sure because like I said he's very similar to John Stones and frankly I, I, I think very highly of John Stones and I haven't seen that much of Laporte in terms of consistently um, to say that he is better than him but I, like I said I think tactically that's where the move will end up. Yeah, kind of. I, I kind of understand what Pep's doing with the, you know, a left-footed centre half, right-footed centre half, the angles that it opens up, and how it all comes together as, as a formation and a system. But Chris, again, who do you think is the best pairing there? Are you going to throw in someone like a Vincent Company or John Stones? For me, I love seeing Company and Otamendi early parts of the season because we sort of got the best Otamendi that we've seen in the Premier League—a confident player, a player that's completing passes for fun and. Dick- Taking the play, Chris. Do you think it's needed, or a Bill Bow just you know making some more money? I mean, the difficulty is for for, for Bill Bow is that the release clause is, has been paid. Um, I mean, it's just been confirmed as we are talking right now that the clause has been paid and that Laporte has has released his farewell message. So I don't really think they've had a huge say in it. Um, they've known City have been interested for a while. They tried to play the clause um, and get the deal done. I think twenty fifteen. Um, but Laporte didn't feel he was was ready. In terms of of why City are choosing to do it now, I I imagine they're partially influenced by the fact that as good as company is and as good as he was at the weekend against Cardiff, there's there's still concerns and there's no reliability from his body um, and whether that can hold up. And I think once you sort of remove company from that um, discussion as as a reliable, consistent centre-back, you are kind of left with with Stones and and Otamendi, and I think as as the back end of the season sort of comes into view, it's not just the Premier League that you've got to consider. There's the Champions League, which I think City have a fantastic opportunity to really make some headway in. You then have the League Cup final. Uh, they're still in the FA Cup, of course, so they're on theoretically for a, a quadruple, um, and I think that's where. They just want that little bit of a security policy and a little bit of depth because I don't think they trust Mangala. And I can kind of understand that because when he has played, he hasn't looked that convincing to me this season. Um, so, yeah, I think from from their perspective, essentially what City are doing and what I think they've started to do a lot more now is essentially buy before they need. Um, and, and I can't necessarily fault that as a, as a recruitment strategy because if you've got the the financial uh, resources to do it, I think it makes a lot of sense because it means you're not scrabbling around uh, trying to, to do deals late in the day like some, some clubs I can think of. No, it's a, it's a, it's a fair point. I quite like the, the fact that City are, you know, they are stockpiling talent. It's, a, it's an interesting strategy. It's almost what Chelsea do at youth level, but at professional level. Now City have um, four of the top five players in terms of most expensive defenders in world football and the second most expensive goalkeeper. It's an interesting, you know, line that the, the club pedal, of course, the Alexis 
because Sanchez was too expensive for them, but yet they're spending £57 million on a defender it looks like they don't really need in terms of their squad. But that is Manchester City for you in the modern day. Moving on from Manchester City, let's talk about yeah, your dude. club, Chris. Newcastle, we're not even going to let you have a, a stab at that, Nico. That is just going to be me right, dropping some bombs. <laughs> no questions asked. But anyway, moving on to Daniel Sturridge. An interesting one for you, Chris, because your club, Newcastle, were heavily linked this morning to sign Daniel Sturridge, but apparently he didn't travel up north for his medical. Chris, are you sad? Are you upset? Do you think he would have been a perfect fit for Newcastle United? Um, he would have, he would have been a really good option. Um, I mean, I say that again. I have concerns, not dissimilar to company. His injury record isn't great. I was a little bit concerned how he would fit in a team that was looking to uh, run a lot and. And he's, he's very much founded on the idea that they have to um, cover a lot of ground defensively because that's that's sort of how they press. It's not quite aggressive. It's a little bit more standoffish and and uh, requiring hard work. And how does a body hold up like that? I can't. I couldn't see him. I should say because he's obviously going to West Brom now. Um, I couldn't see him filling that role that say Dwight Gale or Hosalu plays because he's not as big as Hosalu and he's he's not as mobile. I would argue as Dwight Gale. He is. A brilliant finisher, um, and for that reason alone, I think, uh, yeah, it, it would have been a, a benefit how he fits in, how he would have fit in exactly. I'm not sure, but thankfully, that's not something I really have to think about that now because uh, he's not going to be coming at all. <laughs> would have been quite nice to see him at number 10, maybe like taking the Pablo Amar role. Of course, Pablo Amar did work hard for Rafa Benitez as Valencia, but again, he had that, that sort of creative freedom and. You know, getting on, I think Daniel Sturridge has probably lost that yard of pace that he had at Liverpool, those explosive. And um, so it is sort of a moving Daniel Sturridge. And it, it will be interesting at West Brom. You think they've got some good wingers around them, the likes of Matt Phillips, uh, you know, slinging balls into the box, a partnership with maybe Rondon or a Jay Rodriguez or, you know, Ollie Burke out wide. It, it's a really interesting move. And, and Pardew, for all his, you know, his miscomings, the dance at Wembley, the failure at, uh, at Newcastle after he, you know, had such a good. Uh, season when he finished fifth it's quite interesting that again he's building a squad at West Brom that looks surprisingly attractive compared to Tony Pulis's side so it is an interesting move once again um, but your favourite player in the Premier League Nico of course Morgan Schneidlin the greatest midfielder right to, to bless the Premier League is is on his way to West Ham United Chris do you think it, sorry Nico do you think it's someone that would fit in at David Moyes' side is there a player you can see then that he can come in for or uh, sort of change in tactics at all I mean, I haven't seen that much of West Ham or Morgan Scheidlin for a long time. Was hoping to see a lot of him at Manchester United, but that didn't quite work out, did it? Um, but yeah, he's a really exceptionally gifted defensive midfielder. I think he's a really good passer. We saw his ability at Southampton. Um, but in, in terms of how he fits in, fits in at West Ham, I think is he adds another player to this a system that you know David Moyes has done well to to kind of keep steady and and put West Ham back on at least a relatively stable path. And I think he's a, he's another good player that they'll probably add to their team, which is a good move. Um, but I do have something to say about Daniel Sturridge as well, which is what does this say about, you know, and this, of course, no disrespect to, to Chris's club, Newcastle, but I mean, I highly doubt that there wasn't at least a, a, a hint or some possibility of a move uh, for a player like him to go outside of the Premier League, and yet the only links that we're seeing inside of it are, are, are the only the only links that we're seeing of the player as the window closes are for inside of it. I mean, does that 
is it, is it a case of Jack Wilshire again, where he didn't really want to go to Roma, and and this is a consistent thing for English players that they just don't seemingly don't want to go abroad for. I mean, probably for monetary mo- monetarily motivated reasons, but I mean, for a, a player that has enjoyed a career like he has, where there's a ton of promise, but at the same time maybe difficulty staying on the field and other issues as well, I think it would be massively beneficial for him to 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 go somewhere outside of the Premier League. Am, am I wrong? No, I think it's 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 sort of England being separate from mainland Europe in a way where at school I don't think we we're not pushed language as much as they are in France in Germany and in a way it's a it is a bit sad that we're not seeing someone like a Daniel Sturridge someone like a Jack Wilshire applying their trade in in a Serie A obviously it'll be better for the English game you know that experience whether it is at a playing level coming back from a Roma and having this experience of how tactical Italy is whether it's from a coaching perspective or a player perspective that's always good for for English football in a way one player maybe returning from Spain uh, De La Feo Maybe moving to Watford on loan, of course, Javier Garcia took over from Marco Silva last week and uh, be looking to bring in the former Everton man. But just to finish things off, uh, this little section, the transfer section, we'll ask you two lads, who has done the best business so far in January and who did not have the best last week of the window? Chris, you first. Uh, I'm inclined to say Arsenal because I think they've signed a few different players um, and... They've, they've addressed some, if not all, of their needs, which I think is um, is all you can ask from from this situation. Fair play, Nico. Who do you think they address their best, the problems, the best? Chelsea, Manchester City. Um, possibly. Like I said before, I really liked the Batshuayi to Dortmund move. They're in an interesting place, but that's kind of what you know their mo as a club. Not necessarily being inconsistent and bad at results, but they have to do this kind of business because. Ultimately, they are a feeder club. They're not exactly um, of the pedigree of a Barcelona or a top five club in Europe, but they are consistently there because of the way that they run their club, um, both from a financial and a development perspective. So I think this is just one of those cycles that they have to enter. Their plan of uh, pushing Thomas Tuchel through with a bunch of really gifted players and achieving success through that didn't fall through because players left, things happened, things that they couldn't foresee. So this is just a restart to their cycle. And I think having someone like Batshuayi, you know, losing Usman Dembele, but bringing in other talented youngsters is just a part of the process for them. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if we see them re-emerge to the, to the, you know, to the talented heights that we saw under Jurgen Klopp or something like that in a few years. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say probably I would, it's difficult to say Arsenal, not because I disagree with the points that Chris made, but because all of these moves don't really have a vision for anything farther than two years down the road and that's really difficult to do when you're trying to be a consistent top four club again and so in that sense I think it's it's going it's something that is going to be really fun and interesting to watch in terms of immediate payoff but from a long-term perspective I think it's a disaster because how do you replace these players in a few years you have an interesting wage structure that you have to deal with and from how we've seen Arsenal run for the past couple years I just I don't see how they could handle that exceptionally well. It is interesting. Clubs like Dortmund, like Southampton, are a great example of uh, you know a club in in the UK that do sell players and look to to recruit. They've had a bit of a problem recently, like Sacedo Mane, Graziano Pella being let go, and no really nobody really coming in and replacing them. Chris, do you think this sort of sell to buy model is impossible to maintain long term? Like you have to be getting your scouting right every single time. We saw a great Dortmund side taken apart over the years when they couldn't maintain that. Do you think it's impossible, Chris? 
I, I, th- I think it isn't, unfortunately. I think you look at the, the teams that are the biggest proponents of this, like Southampton, like Monaco, like Ajax. This season, you've seen a, a drop-off in all three at some co- in, in some form or another. Monaco aren't able to, to keep pace with PSG, who, granted, have been sensational compared to last season. Ajax are a second behind PSV. They obviously crashed out of... Uh, the, the Champions League or the, the European qualification as well. They lost to Rosenborg of, of all teams, which again is, is not a game I expected them uh, to lose. And Southampton, who have gone from a team that I think we all looked at as perhaps the model for a club that looks to rise through the divisions and, and establish itself, to now they're in a position where they're, they're banking on Guido Carrillo from, from Monaco, firing them to, to safety with this final chapter of the, the Premier League season coming about. So... I think the the problem comes in in almost knowing, not necessarily when to sell, but how much you can theoretically sell. I think the problem is it's the the scope of change that inevitably leaves you you counting the cost of things. Um, I mean, granted, Ajax didn't really sell a, a a huge number of players, so they haven't seen what I would consider a drastic drop off. It was more really about them losing Peter Bose than than um, than anything else. But I look at Monaco, who, between Bakayoko and Mbappe, Bernardo Silva, there's three key players in that team. And really, I would say only Keita Balde has, has come in and, and hit the ground running. And, th- and that's the problem, I think, there, is that you you need those new faces to come in and hit the ground running. And and as I'm sure you know, many people will tell you in, in football... And speaking with with just a little bit of experience, there are so many different variables that that go into a new player arriving at a football club that can theoretically stop them uh, having that bright start from just settling into a new system to settling into a new area. um, All of these different things that that can influence it. So no, I think ultimately it's not if, if you are almost too aggressive in the way that you, you sell and then look to buy. I think you've got to take your time. I think that's the big thing. I think it is all about long term. And unfortunately, in football, fans want the short term. You know, you take Monaco as a good example. They lost to Mbappe, one of the best young forwards in world football. But they have replaced him in this window. Petro Pellegrini. Is that right? Pellegrini um, from Genoa. 16-year-old. They've signed him for £17 million yesterday. Um, that is, of course, Sunday to anyone listening to this podcast uh, a little bit later on. But, you know, a wonderful young talent. I think that's the big thing. Southampton have lacked goals um, on the flip side of that, they're looking at someone like Quincy Poms in this transfer window from Spartak Moscow. So I think it's possible, but you've got to have patience. And I think that's the big thing. Southampton, what they've, they're looking like they're going to sack their manager this season. They sacked their manager last season. A manager like Claude Puel that showed that he is a very good manager, you know, take what he's done at Leicester City. So it's like sort of like managing this uh, short-term mentality with long-term gains in a way. But that is all very interesting. That is enough um, diving into... The transfers in and around the world, talking point number one. On to talking point number two. We are just going to be talking Arsenal and Abemiang and how he fits in, um, where does Lacazette play, and so. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Fourth. Where will Abemiang play for Arsenal? What system do you think they're going to play? What's he going to bring to this side? It's an interesting one because you would you would probably think of him as, a, as an out-and-out out striker as he's sort of played for Dortmund in the past couple of years in, in a single kind of striker system. But then, of course, you have Lacazette, you have other attacking players in that system, um, like Mesut Ozil and now Henrik and Katarian, that they all, I mean, we would imagine that they all need to share the pitch at the same time. So I think probably some semblance of a front four is what we're going to see uh at Arsenal for for a little bit because uh, because I imagine that they'd want to have all the all of these attacking players on the pitch at the same time. With that being said, they don't really play like a num like Mesut Ozil as a number ten. He's very fluid. He's from he comes from midfield. He can pop up in different spaces. So in terms of what that means for a, for the forwards, you still have to incorporate that this is going to be a three back system. So I imagine we might see some semblance of a three four three. Um, with Mesut Ozil sort of roaming from that midfield four, which yet again kind of fits into that, to what we've said about Arsene Wenger in recent weeks, which is that, you know, their attack is excellent. They create a ton of chances. We saw that against Manchester United, which are, you know, probably one of the best defensive teams out there up until that point. Um, but the the defensive the defensive issues come from the, the the way that they structure their team and that's kind of, that's kind of going to be the issue going forward for, for Arsenal is that, they have this system that's going to be extremely unbalanced because you have all these attacking players that, you know, not all of them are going to do the defensive work that you ask of them. But but then you, you're you're creating a ton going forward because of the players that you have on the pitch. So in terms of what Aubameyang would bring to that system, I think he'd work well with Lacazette. But it, it's going to be a weird one. What do you, what are you seeing, Dave? I just think it's a bit of a bit of a strange transfer. You've just coughed up thirty million pounds to buy Ligue best striker in the last few seasons in Lacazette. And now you've signed another number nine in the next window. Again, it's all about this long-term, short-term, um, you know, business. If you were to play a three-four-two-one, Mezzo Ozil isn't going to be playing in central midfield because that just wouldn't work. Arsenal would be so open if they played a single pivot in midfield with, you know, a front four of Lacazette, um, Ozil, Mickey, and Abemiang. That'd be absolutely crazy. It's quite interesting. I think Abemiang will be will be good in the Premier League, but I think the thing with Arsenal fans is that they may get on his back and his confidence might go. Abemiang is a Cavani type forward that will miss a number of chances. I rewatched the Dortmund Gladbach game from earlier on in the season, six one, a cracking game. But Abemiang pretty much had eight clear cut chances. He had eight shots on goal and he scored three. He's got a hat trick, but you think someone that would be, you know, like a Lionel Messi in that game or Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously not in the current form, but in previous seasons, would be scoring eight goals. And I think that is what you've got to get with the Birmingham if you're an Arsenal fan. You've got to know that he will miss chances. He's your classic like Andy Cole type forward that has loads of chances, gets into loads of really good positions, loves running the blind side of defenders, loves attacking the space in between either a fullback and a centre half or between the two centre backs. It's always making that move and using his pace and 
almost waiting for his teammates to create. But it's it's going to be frustrating at some point for Aubameyang. And with Lacazette in there, does Lacazette move to the left wing? It's going to be quite interesting. Mkhitaryan as well, you know, bringing into this this equation, Chris. Do you think a forward line of Lacazette, Ozil, uh, Mkhitaryan, Aubameyang, and maybe a four-two-three-one could be where Arsenal are going? And, and Lacazette is the guy that's going to be forced out wide. I think so. I mean, the, the thing is, Lacazette, I think, started his career out wide. At least that's where I remember seeing him many, many years ago in, in what I think was the Emirates Cup for, for Lyon. Um, he was quite a pacey player that, that looked to, to to break in behind from, from out wide. I'm not sure if he's still that same player now. And I think, actually, it would be quite frustrating for him to, to learn that he's going to be pushed out wide because I think the intention was, when he arrived, that he was going to be that central striker that he had become at, at Lyon. Um, the four-two-three-one is obviously something that, that Wenger uh, admires a lot. It's a formation that he seems to put a lot of stock in. Um, it's arguably the one I would associate most with him. In fact, as I look at his career at Arsenal and and his lack of flexibility or willingness to shift from that, I think has at times cost him. You would say though that that Aubameyang fits that four-two-three-one very well. Um, so for me, it's uh, it's it seems. Painfully obvious that that's probably going to be the formation that they use, and and then where the the Mkhitaryan and and Ozil fit into that, I'm not entirely sure. Perhaps they interchange um, with one of the wide positions in a central position during the course of the game. I think that could be the problem. I think if they, if you give these attacking players so much creative freedom, what are they going to do in a defensive sense? And we may see teams counter-attacking Arsenal, you know, three on two as. Well we have done over the last few seasons. Quite interesting in terms of Mkhitaryan this season in the Premier League. I don't think I don't think that he's he's failed at Manchester United. No, this season only Pogba's got more Premier League assists than Mkhitaryan. Mkhitaryan's only played twice since October. But one way that they could all fit together maybe is a 4-4-2 shape. We've seen that you know emerge over the last few seasons as a dominant formation in Europe with you know four out of the four teams played a 4-4-2 or a variant of a 4-4-2 in the Champions League semi-finals, Nico. Do you think that a 4-4-2 or maybe a 4-2-2-2 could work for Arsenal with both Lacazette and Aubameyang up front? I mean, the it's it's difficult. For me, the difficult thing to see here is who will be providing the workout wide because we have... For me, the, the the four players that we're kind of talking about here in Lacazette, Aubameyang, Ozil, and Mkhitaryan, they're all kind of central players with maybe maybe the exception of of Mkhitaryan who can do do some good things out wide, but you wouldn't imagine that he wants to be there for the entire game. He wants to cut inside. He wants to create things centrally. And that's the consistent thing about Arsenal is that I think Arsene Wenger has rightly identified that that's the best way to try and penetrate teams, to try to create chances, is to create problems and uh, draw draw teams out of the middle and all of these all four of these players are good at doing that Lacazette has incredible uh, ability to link up with players in the middle and Aubameyang has that good ability to run in behind as well as you know kind of strike through the middle of the pitch as you mentioned there he likes to attack uh, the middle of the center backs or the space between the center back and the fullback the issue is I wonder if this is a, a you know as I've talked about with Chris before I think is that there are certain points of the Arsenal system where simply too much work or too much pressure is asked of certain players in the system. We've seen it before with the defensive midfielders and possibly now with sort of the fullback, sort of wingback type players because if we're asking them to do all of the the work of keeping the the, the width of the pitch and, and keeping that defensive work wide, then I, I just don't see those players having a whole lot of success for a sustained period of time because 
that's the issue with the four players is that I don't see Mesut Ozil doing a, a ton of defensive work. I don't see Aubameyang necessarily doing a ton of work, though he was in a, uh, a, um, a pressing system at Dortmund, as well as, you know, Henrik Mkhitaryan is a, is a versatile player and he definitely likes to go back and forth. But ideally, that's not where you want to what you want to see him doing for 90 or, or however many minutes on the pitch. So. Once again, it's, it's just weird how they're going to fit all of these pieces together, which I'm sure in some sense they will from an attacking perspective. The issue for Arsenal yet again here is that they will fall, they will falter defensively. They will have issues at the back because of how much they're putting forward. So again, maybe another sort of stage of Arsenal's bad recruitment policy. You know, they have brought in Sven Mislintat from Borussia Dortmund, who did bring Mkhitaryan, Aubameyang, Usman Dembele to Dortmund. But again, as you mentioned, Nico, is he buying the right pieces to solve the puzzle at Arsenal? Or maybe he's looking to bring Thomas Tuchel to the club, which obviously well, not they massively and, fell out at Dortmund, right? Yeah, and, but I mean, that's the thing also is that for me, sometimes when you see these things in the media, like, for example, when Louis van Gaal went to Manchester United, we saw links with him, you know, continuous links with him and Dutch players. And then sometimes when you have managers go to a different club, you see links with their previous players, which is fine. But when you have that from a recruitment perspective, someone that's solely supposed to be responsible for uh, bringing in new players to the club, they're supposed to aid the club going forward. And all they want to do is go back to previously used ideas. That doesn't scream you know, invention from the person that's supposed to give be giving you sort of gems. And especially in Arsenal's financial situation where they don't want to spend as, you know, vicariously as a Manchester City or a Manchester United, they need to have out-of-the-park home runs with some of these players. And buying 28 or 29 or 30-year-olds and past ideas and, and these players that might not fit too well together in a system, it, it just, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in the immediacy. And that's the, the criticism for Arsenal is that not just financially does this not seem feasible, but also from a player perspective, it doesn't seem entirely feasible. Mm, it's an interesting one, obviously losing a star in Alexis Sanchez and uh, you know replacing him with Mkhitaryan with an Abemiang. It does kind of work, but at the same time, it's not Alexis Sanchez, which moves us on to talking point number three, and that is Alexis Sanchez's debut for Manchester United and the instant impact he made on Mourinho's side. Nico, what did you think his performance against Yeovil Town on Friday night? I didn't get to see it, Dave. But uh, oh, but, you missed but, it. <laughs> but it, but it was against Yeovil Town, so I can't imagine the quality of opposition was uh, was all too great, was it? <laughs> what, what, like these? This is a professional football club. Why are you disrespecting Yeovil Town? They're in I'm not two. disrespecting They've Yeovil Town. They've been up and down the leagues for for a side. Like this is the problem with football at the moment. Why is it that a player plays well against? you know, a smaller team. And it's like, oh, well, <laughs> even though he played well, it's it doesn't matter because that they were only league... No, you know, of course, of course it's it matters. It's a lot of rubbish, right? You look at his stats, for example. <laughs> when he was on the pitch, he had more, more touches than any other player on it. The most wow. passes, the most chances <laughs> created, the most shots, Mate. the most crosses. The guy did yeah. everything. Alexis Sanchez, Alexis Sanchez, Dave does does bring up an interesting uh, question, and I'll ask this of you. Um, and we've we've been talking and kind of moaning about Arsenal's transfer policy and what it means for them in the immediacy. And I think the the, the stark contrast between them and Arsenal is that they can afford to make these kind of moves. They can afford to pay what they've paid for Alexis Sanchez, both in the transfer whatever and and also the wages because of you know what they have financially as a club. 
in the immediacy, how do you see that affecting Manchester United and how well does he fit into the system with all of the other attacking players that seem to kind of be shoehorned into the squad at times? Nico, United haven't spent any money on on uh, Alexis Sanchez. They've simply well, they've, they've spent with a considerable Arsenal. amount for his for his uh, wages, rather, and it does it does impact the wage structure in some way, shape, or form. And he is twenty nine. That is the only criticism that I think some people might he's have of this transfer. Four year deal, playing until he's thirty three at Man United. He gets paid whatever he gets paid a week. It's not my money. It's not any United fans' money. Man United are the most the best in, in the best position in terms of finance. The, Fo- the Forbes list came out last week. United were top exactly. Again. That's like, exactly like, the why, like, is that they can make these they can do that sort of thing because of who they are as a club. Now, how does that impact the the team in the immediacy? Well, it's a positive thing, right? You saw his performance against the Oval Town. Yeah, it's the Oval Town, but I expect Alexis Sanchez to have a similar input input against Spurs. I think the. The problem with Manchester United is uh, maybe a lack of identity in the final third and what you've got with Alexis Sanchez is a true identity. Yes, he plays a lot of high percentage passes, but if one of those passes comes off, like he is the assist he got for Ander Herrera, that was a brilliant counter-attack that was led by the Chilean, like that's not a problem for me. I think, it, I think it's a wonderful signing. I think what you'll see from young players like Marcus Rashford, like Anthony Martial, is that they'll be able to learn from Sanchez's his work rate, his determination. United's two big problems for me are both, you know, in an attacking sense, sometimes they run, about, run out of ideas in the final third and just simply cross the ball. With someone like a, a playmaker there, that's what Sanchez is. He's a playmaker where you get the ball as much as you can and you let him do what he wants to do. If he loses the ball, he loses it. It's your job to win it back. It's Nemanja Matic's job. It's the, the fullbacks, it's the centre halves, it's the central midfielders, it's the striker. But having someone like Alexis Sanchez who has that quality is, you know, it, it massively, massively updates United's team and updates their style. You think about the pressing as well, something United have lacked over the last, um, you know, let's say since Louis van Gaal. Under Mourinho, United haven't pressed as well. When someone, you've got someone like Sanchez in your side that is hungry, that can get a team going, it's just very exciting to see what United can become, especially in these bigger games. Sanchez potentially playing through the middle against, like a Manchester City, and stopping them build up. I think the brilliant thing that Liverpool did against City recently was that they, they caught them out when the centre-halves had the ball in certain phases. It wasn't an aggressive press, it was a, a phase press where they identified certain situations and they jumped out and that they nicked the ball in the high areas and they transitioned down the flanks, as you've got to do. You've got someone like Alexis Sanchez who can do that. Then you throw another pace of players in that lineup, like a Lukaku, like a Martial. That becomes a real dangerous front three. And in a way, unfortunately, for American soccer and the MLS, there's a new MLS in the world football. And that is, of course, Martial, Lukaku and Alexis Sanchez. But moving a bit further on, we're going to talk about recruitment for Manchester United. Nico, do United need to do any more recruitment in this window? Mm, I think you were mentioning sort of in the in the run up to the podcast as we were talking about that you think that you Manchester United need a central midfielder and I would I I don't know if I completely agree with that but I would certainly say that about Manchester City and in fact they are in for the same supposedly in for the same (laughs) in uh, Jean-Michel City how do you feel about that move dude it's an interesting one what I like at the moment is that after United have pipped City to this big transfer every single player that City are buying apparently has been leaked somewhere that United have been interested too yet you don't the respected United journalists who get leads directly from the club there's no talk of it at all but it's an interesting one someone like a, a Sari would be an interesting proposition for the United midfield a more of a worker more of a shuffler does get through his passing work but he's not going to you know, unlock a defence he was about to move to Barcelona then they pulled out the deal in the summer 
but I'd prefer maybe someone a little bit more aggressive, someone more with a bit more physicality to him and goals. Someone like a Milinkovic Savic from Lazio could be quite interesting. Watch the Lazio AC Milan game at the weekend. It's a cracking game. Um, of course, Catuso, AC Milan manager at the moment, got slapped on the head by his entire team after the, the final whistle because he, he said he'd allow them to do that if they performed. And of course, they won. Uh, there was good, some good performances from the likes of Suso ex Liverpool and Carlo Glu ex uh, Bayer Leverkusen. But in terms of what Milinkovic Savic did in the game, he was abrasive. He worked as a shuffler in this sort of 3-5-1-1 that Lazio play. He had a number of big chances and uh, didn't take them, unfortunately, but he was getting into the right areas. and He's a real threat physically, and I think that's what you bring to Manchester United. It's almost the next of all form of Marouane Fellaini. I don't think Marouane Fellaini is the most technically gifted player, but Savage has the physicality, has the height, also he's got the ability on the ball to, to move it around. So it'd be a really interesting one playing him and Paul Pogba partnering um, in midfield together. But I think with United, it's, it's going to be the 4-3-3. This season, especially, but with Mesut Ozil heavily, heavily linked with the move to the club, I'm not sure that it will be that, and it may be moving to the 4-2-3-1. Nico, what do you think is best for United, the 4-3-3 or the 4-2-3-1 in the long term? I think it's the 4-3-3. It, it really kind of brings out some of the best attributes of those players that have been at United for a little bit, and you know haven't uh, had the greatest deal of consistency up until now. Um, specifically, Anthony Martial, I think. A four-three-three gets the best out of him, and when you have the when you have him taking on players in the wing in isolated areas, you're you're going to create a ton of chances and, and really good chances because he he's not only going to get to the byline like a maybe a traditional English winger or an English team would prefer. He's going to be, you know, having those really high quality low crosses into the box, and when you have someone like Lukaku who's able to finish those chances really well, um, I, I think that's that's kind of the best of what you want. And then kind of whoever you want to put out on the right, whether it be a, a mystery player in the future, whoever United end up recruiting, or for right now maybe Alexis Sanchez, you that's a that's a match you know that's a that's a that's a match made in heaven as it were because you have chance creation from both sides if you can isolate those players on the wing. So four through three for me. Mm, I think this three-man midfield is what United should build around, be it a 4-3-3 or 3-5-2, depending on whether United are playing against a back three or a, you know, a back two. You think Paul Pogba has grabbed uh, you know, seven assists in the last month or two, and that's all sort of been when he's been playing as a, as a central midfielder and a three-man midfield. I think it gives him better space. I think it's the sort of interesting side to it. He's a little bit more freedom, and he can overlap the, the winger, he can underlap. And in the fourth Two, three, one. If he's playing as a, you know, as part of the double pivot, a little bit more restricted. But it will be interesting going forward for Manchester United. Of course, Sanchez. I think he will play on the left wing, um, and where Martial plays, maybe on rotation or maybe on the right. I think it's only going to be a good thing for Anthony Martial. I think Martial should develop his game as a forward that can play on both flanks. I think that's uh, that's something you need to do, and eventually maybe playing as a striker. And it's all about developing him, his brain, and you know, identifying certain situations. Again, if he plays eventually as a striker. When he's drifting out to the right wing, you want him to be comfortable in that area. So maybe it will be Sanchez on the left, Lukaku through the middle and Martial on the right. But what I want to see is a lot of interchange of those three positions at Manchester United. What a debut for Alexis Sanchez. What a signing. Back in the title race, Nico. Definitely not, Dave. The The gap is still still 12 points, I believe. So I don't think yeah, they're going to close that before. gap anytime. It's been done before, Nico, and it could be done again. I think we have lost Kristen Hennage to the wide world. Oh, no. Kristen Hennage has returned. So, Kristen, your thoughts on the Alexis Sanchez debut against Yeovil Town, just to finish things off. Um, I thought you saw the best and the worst of him. <clears throat> um, at his best, he, he set up the uh, the goal for Ander Herrera. 
showed some really great decision making in the final third in terms of he had a lot of options and he, and he ultimately picked the best one. Um, there was a lot of industry, there was a lot of energy to him. He constantly wanted the ball, which I think is always a good sign for any player because it's very easy to um, disappear in games like that um, and just in general. I think at its worst you saw him almost drifting inside a bit too much, wanting to be involved in everything. Um, and sometimes, you know, in the words of, of the late great Johan Cruyff, the, the, the best way to help your teammate is to move away from them, not come closer towards them. Um, but I think even saying that, it's it's being a little bit hypercritical. I think you got everything you could kind of expect from him. The the money should hopefully fade into um, the background now because really it's, it means absolutely nothing um, in the grand scheme of things. And I'll, I'll be curious to see how he melds with... The rest of that attacking lineup because he's um, he's obviously a wonderful player. He's used to being more of a leader, I think, in the final third. Someone that starts things, tries to finish things. Whereas Manchester United don't really need that. I think they need a, a supplement, not someone to to organise the whole band. So I'm I'm curious to see maybe what changes Mourinho makes to his game to to get the most out of him. Yeah, interesting thoughts. Um... You know, I'd probably say United do need the, someone to lead the band in the final third. I think there's a lot of young players there. I think there's somebody that there is a space for for leadership there. And Sanchez, for me, is the perfect guy. But anyway, guys, that has been that for the front three this week. New format, three talking points. We may add something next week, so stay tuned to that. Uh, but it will be three more guys next week. We're going to rotate the the sort of the guys. Maybe Lars will turn up once in a while. Adam Boltwood again. Um, you know, talking about how Spurs have failed in. Um, but anyway, till next week, Chris, where can the, the good listeners of the front three find you? Uh, what are you writing about this week? What's going down in Chris Hennig land? Nothing really to write about this week thus far. That can always change, thankfully, but you can find me at K Hennig. Nico, are you writing about Juventus? Are you writing about Barcelona? What's going down? I will probably be writing, be writing something about both of those teams soon. I know I'm making a video on Juventus pretty soon. Um, but I did write something recently about Manchester City uh, and sort of their, their style of play and how the English, the English football culture affects Manchester City. So if you want to give that a read, you can visit my profile on Twitter, and I'm sure it's on there somewhere, at Nico underscore O'Morales. That's been that. It is over. It is over.